Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Apple Store Sydney. In celebration of creativity and filmmaking, we are so excited to be working once again with the Sydney Film Festival in presenting the Meet the Filmmaker series. I'd like to now welcome our moderator for today, Robbie Buck. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome along. Who's teared up? You've just, seen, just been to see the film. I was an absolute blubbering mess. I saw it a couple of days ago. Otherwise, I'd be sitting here weeping in front of you. Isn't it a stunningly beautiful film? It's, uh, it's incredible. Um, I'm so chuffed to be able to sit down and have a chat with Morgan Neville, the man who made this film, um, just to ask him how he comes up with a creation that is so beautiful, that touches on so many things and is able to express music in the way that it has. I think it's just such an incredible piece of uh, creativity. Morgan, I've been speaking with him for the last half an hour, he's a horrible person, as you can imagine. I mean, he's an Academy Award-winning filmmaker, of course. He won for uh, uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, or as we call it here in Australia, six and a few metres, six and a bit metres from Stardom. Um, and he's, I can't believe what a nice guy he is. I mean, it's, it's a little bit outrageous, to be honest. Let's welcome him up. Morgan Neville, ladies and gentlemen. Come and take a seat, Morgan. Let's Thank talk. You. Let's talk music and let's talk film. We'll be here for about four and a half days. It's going to. It's going to be absolutely great. A lot to say. Um, we'll touch on your other films a little bit. Obviously, you've done a lot of other music films as well. And there's Muddy Waters and there's Keith Richards and there's the Stack Story and all kinds of things. But let's start with Yo-Yo Ma to begin with, um, because I believe it was not music that you began chatting to him about, but um, but wine in the oh. first instance. I mean. How I really started chatting with Yo-Yo. Um, the real story, and I mentioned just a bit before the movie, is that I got a call from Yo-Yo's office saying they wanted, he wanted to talk to me about maybe shooting a live music event. Um, and so I went to his office, and, um, and after about 10 minutes, we sat down at a table, and after about 10 minutes he said, um, you know, will you come over here to the corner to discuss something with me, Morgan. I have something very serious I want to discuss with you. And I was a little taken aback and intimidated. And um, he walked me over, and there was a little table set up with some wine and cheese. And he, I don't know if I can say this in a public setting, but he said, this wine is so fucking good. You have to try the Merlot, not the Cabernet, you know, and, and this is what he wanted to discuss with me. So this is his way of breaking the ice, which is very yo-yo. Like, he has a kind of a wicked sense of humor. Hasn't he seen Sideways? I thought Merlot was yes. off the... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then um, we talked for hours. Um, by the end of the night, um, yeah, we, we were like best friends, and we had launched this idea to make this film, not knowing what the film was going to be but knowing what the ideas were going to be. And that is a, an interesting point, because y y when you go into making a documentary, I, I think you've said this before, but that you, you don't want all the answers in front of you. You, you, you sort of, I think you, you use the analogy, launch yourself off a cliff and hope there's enough draft <laughs> to, to catch you. But, but take us through the rationale for that. Why, uh, you know, when, you, when you're heading into a creative venture, are you hoping not to know what the outcome's going to be? I think it's... It's important to not know all the answers because I've seen, it's interesting because um, working in Los Angeles and having worked with so many people to come out of film school, film school in fact kind of teaches you all the wrong things I think to make documentaries because film school is all about what's your voice, what do you want to say? And um, making documentaries is all about listening. It's about asking questions you don't know the answer to. And so when I see people coming out of a film school background making documentaries, they interview people like they're interviewing hostile witnesses. Like, isn't it true that you did this? And they're trying to get people to say things. And I think if you embrace not knowing, you actually end up with a more interesting story. Um, and you have to be comfortable with that. I've done this long enough that I've become a lot more comfortable with the fact that I don't know where it's gonna go. I just need to know there are a couple of things I can grab onto. There's a character or a question or a story or something that is intriguing to me, but, I, but now I, I kind of know I'll find it on the way. It may just take five years like it did in this case. <laughs> well, tell us about the, the characters that we've met because the, the stories are so tragic uh, and so beautiful at the same time. But when you started talking with, with Yo-Yo, did you know about this, the Silk Road Ensemble to the, the degree that the, 
there were these stories in it, and the, the characters who were in it, and, and of course uh, the fact also that there are characters that you filmed that aren't uh, that you that don't end up in the in the finished film as well. Sure. I mean, I knew about the Silk Road project, but I didn't know it very well, and I didn't know who the characters were that I was going to film. I met Christina right away, um, who is great, who is incredible. She leaps, you know, she's like that in real life. She just has so much charisma. Um, but somebody like Keenan Osme, the clarinetist from Syria who's in the film, he had not even joined the Silk Road Ensemble when we started filming. So I didn't meet him until, in the film, there's a moment of him in a recording session. That's the first time he ever played with the Silk Road Ensemble was during a recording session. So it was an evolving picture for me of trying to figure it out and filming with these musicians and a bunch of other amazing musicians who aren't featured in the film. But for me, then, the challenge was coming up with this diverse group of musicians in the film from different places geographically who have had different experiences but then who also are on a similar journey. And so the journey, the thing, to me, the breakthrough of making the film was figuring out what the journey was. And it's this journey from tradition. They all come out of this real tradition. They're all master musicians in the tradition, but they all made a decision to not do what was expected of them. I mean, they all um, could have just become a music teacher or played in their local orchestra, but they all decided to kind of go out into the world and um, have this bicultural or tricultural experience to play with people like Yo-Yo, but all kinds of other unorthodox things. But then they all return back to that home or back to that tradition with this newfound worldliness. And it finally dawned on me when I was making it. I mean, this is the hero's journey. I mean, this is Joseph Campbell, hero with a thousand faces. And Yo-Yo is one of these people too. They're all on this similar journey away from home and then back, back to home. And really, that's a, it's a bit of a metaphor for culture writ large, isn't it? That, that you're using music to discuss that. But it's this idea that culture needs to progress always. And when things change, sometimes it can be uncomfortable uh, for others. I really, the, the, the term that Yo-Yo was having to defend against, the, the cultural tourism that he was accused of, I think that's a really interesting aspect in this. And... I'm sure this is uh, an accusation that happens not just in music, it happens in all uh, you know, expressions of culture. But, but tell me about your own sort of thoughts on that and your discussions with the musicians about mixing these you know, quite profound histories of music together and really what you're hoping to get out of it. Well, I mean, a couple of answers to that. I mean, on the one hand, there's this idea that if you take all these different kinds of musical elements and put them together, it's like you've put them into a blender and somehow they've all lost their own distinctness. But I think it's quite the opposite. When you hear the music, and I think what the intention is, is that they all retain their identity even though they're mixed with other elements. So you hear all these strains at the same time in these pieces. And, and not every piece is orchestrated with every instrument, but it's more this idea of what they call cosmopolitanism, that every, every um, unique culture still has an element of its uniqueness, even though it's mixed together. But then the, the other answer to that is, um, what tradition? <laughs> you know? That tradition is, um, I mean, as Yo-Yo says in the film, tradition comes from innovation, and I think tradition really succeeds by innovating. Uh, and that kind of the wonderful thing about the metaphor of the Silk Road uh, is that um, it reminds us that things that seem pure and traditional, in fact, aren't. And, you know, the famous example, you could talk about pasta in Italy or something like that that comes from China. But the Silk Road brought everything from algebra to Islam from one continent to another. But if you start looking at it musically, a connection between, say, a Chinese pipa and a lute or a sitar and a guitar, or a kamache, Kahan's instrument, um, which is a Persian spike fiddle, this pure Persian instrument that has four strings. It only has four strings because 500 years ago they saw a violin and said, well, if those have four strings, we should have four strings. So the, even these things that seem pure, that guardians of tradition in all of these cultures hang on to, in fact, have been in dialogue with other cultures going back millennia. I'm going to pose a question that I don't want you to answer just yet. And, and it really, it's the question at the heart of this film, which is, what is the role of music in a world where 
people have AR-15 assault rifles and people are bombing hospitals and there are millions of displaced people and there is pain everywhere. You know, what, is, what, what on earth is the role of, of music? What can it do for us? And I'm, I'm going to leave that question just sort of sitting there like a plump piece of fruit, and we're going to come back to that, okay? But, but really, that, it, for me, when I was watching the film, this is, that, you, you pose the question at the beginning, and you're always thinking about that as the film goes on. While that one's just sitting there maturing for us, here's another question. Yo-Yo Ma, I expected him to be a bit of a prick as well, because here he is, a child prodigy. You know, by all rights, he should have been somebody who's just so ego-filled that's all about himself. And yet, you know, it's watching this film, you get this sense of such a, a centred, thoughtful man who's interested in the world around him in so many different ways. Tell us about him. It, he, he has this amazing kind of childlike way of looking at the world. And um, I mean, it's incredibly, he's incredibly generous. He's incredibly curious. Um, and he's just so kind of open-minded that, I mean, he's really kind of naive in certain ways, which I think he cultivates because it's very important to him to cultivate this. And I, I joked about it, but it's actually kind of true that if I said to Yo-Yo, hey, Yo-Yo, I need to get a shot of you naked walking across the street. He would probably do it. Just, okay, you know, sure. He's just so agreeable and kind of willing to try anything um, that his, you know, wife and manager would, no, no, yo-yo. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But I think he has this sense of kind of anything, anything goes. And I feel like he's, it's become essential to him. I mean, nobody, nobody wanted him to do the Silk Road project. You know, it made no financial sense. It made no sense for anything other than Yo-Yo needed to keep finding his voice. I mean, that's something all artists do. And this idea that I think a lot of artists and certainly, you know, somebody like Yo-Yo could have rested on his laurels and said, okay, yeah, I, can, I know how to play the Bach cello suites. I can just do that for a lot of money around the world for the rest of my life. But that would have been death to him. And I think really and curiosity was the thing that drove him. And is that what drew you to him? Absolutely, because you know the, the most important trait you can have as a documentary filmmaker is curiosity. So I felt like we were both, we both bonded over our curiosity genes. And, um, and so that became part of the adventure too. So who didn't make it in? We'll talk about the characters in a little while and, and some of the some further insights into these you know, amazing characters in this ensemble, just so incredible. But, but tell us about the, the, the characters who didn't make it in. The, the tabla player, for example, you, you did a lot of filming with. Sandeep Das, amazing tabla player. Um, and uh, Sandeep, um, he's like such a warm guy, you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, that he told me all these great stories. So, you know, tabla, when he was first brought over to play with Yo-Yo, uh, he had no idea who Yo-Yo Ma was. Um, but he was brought over to play in 2000. And when they started performing and playing, he, um, they played the piece and he wasn't playing and Yo-Yo said to him, you know, do you, you know, does the music make sense? And he said, no, play it again. And he played it and Sandeep played along with it perfectly. And the thing is that tabla is not, it's an improvisational instrument. There is no written notation for tabla. So he would memorize every piece and then play it perfectly. Um, so it's just a different way of thinking musically. And he's, it, so, but why is he not a character in the film? I mean, I actually called him up and said, uh, Sandeep, I, I've got good news and bad news for you. Um, the bad news is you're not a character in the film, but the good news is that's because you have such a happy life that uh, there's no dramatic tension. And, uh, you know, I think you should just be happy with that. Um, and that's, Part of it. I mean, another character who I loved, um, who you see in the film, uh, Wu Tong, who's the Chinese Shung player, uh, who sings that song with in the group of students there. Uh, and Wu Tong comes from a family that's run a Shung factory, which is a very traditional Chinese instrument for for generations. And they have a Shung museum in Beijing, and he lives in Beijing. But he also is the lead singer and Shung player for a heavy metal band in China. Um, that has both shung and heavy metal guitar mixed together, called again, you know, and I've, and it was such a great kind of story, but it just didn't fit in here. Um, so other interesting avenues not pursued. Yeah. Let's talk about Kehan for a moment because his story is just so heart-wrenching and 
I guess how you treat a story that is, you know, somebody's life and somebody's life that, is, that involves so much tragedy and so much pain, but also so much honour and belief, you know, this char the, the character of, of this man. And we hear constantly that subjects of documentaries see the documentaries and hate how they're being represented, that there's, there's always a choice by the documentary maker to, to, to turn the, the character in this way or that way by the choices that they make. How, how do you rationalise that when you're dealing with a character like that? The thing is, the thing about Kahan is, um, I mean, he's a very kind of reserved person, and um, I'd been told by Yo-Yo and others about all these tragedies in his life, but he had never spoken about them. He'd never, never directly spoken to Yo-Yo about them, and they're very close. I mean, it's something that he really had not shared before, and it's one of the advantages of spending years making a film is that as I got to know him and we started to build trust, I finally came to him and said, you know, I know about some of the tragedies that happened in your life, and I feel like it's important for you to share those, for us to understand the kind of sacrifices you had to make uh, as an artist and as a cultural figure in Iran. And he listened to me, and, and then, so by the time I interviewed him on camera, and when he talked about all those things, I'd known him for three years at that point. So it took kind of three years of building trust to the point where he would actually talk about those things. And then even when we screened the film for everybody in the ensemble, I mean, everybody's, nobody had heard that from him before. It was like a secret he had been keeping that he'd never openly discussed. And, um, and that's just the hard work of making documentaries. Um, so to me, you know, and, and in the end, when he saw the film then with the audience, I think he was, I think he understood why I asked him to do that and why it was important. And yeah, and it's been kind of the opposite reaction. He's been really, really supportive uh, of the film. And I think it is important what he's gone through. I mean, for me, why stories like Kahan's story are so important is that when you have artists in these countries, countries that have had cultural revolutions, you know, China, Iran, Syria, even Spain under Franco, you know, they're not called cultural revolutions by mistake. It's because these, you know, the easiest way to subjugate people are to erase their culture. Culture is how we define ourselves. It's our language. It's our very identity. And I feel like in America and in certainly parts of the West, we take our culture for granted. You know, it's, it's nice to have, you know, it's nice to have an art class or, a, you know, a symphony somewhere, but we don't treat our artists as important. And when you see the sacrifices people make in other cultures and how, um, how heated their position is in the culture, that it reminds you that culture has real, real power to it. And Watching this film, it's, it's such a beautifully constructed film and you're obviously a master manipulator that we should all be fearful of, but it, it, it builds in such a, a beautiful swell. The stories, then the music, and then there's this sort of there's this slow uptake as as you're swept along in those stories. Tell us a little bit about how you actually go about constructing that so so that it has that effect. Because I mean, it seems effortless yeah. when you're watching it, but no doubt there's a great deal of thought that goes into it. Well, one thing for me is, and I say this all the time to people making music films, that music is not wallpaper; <laughs> that the music is part of the story. So. Often, I mean, I started this early on when I was making films like a Hank Williams film, I remember, or Stax Records film, that I would put together a soundtrack before I started editing the film. And it may change, but at least think about how the music would tell the story. If you took everything out and just tried to musically chart the story, both emotionally and in terms of what it was saying, how does it do that? And then if you can integrate that into your edit so that the songs are there to actually advance the story or the character or to say something, um, then it's working to me in a dimensional way that it should. Because so often I see music just kind of there to underbed people talking and it doesn't work like that for me. So I, I feel like the music is absolutely essential to what the story is. But at the same time, the, the film can't just be about music. You know, that music is a great language to tell a story, but the film has to say something else, too. 
And I feel like every music film I've done is not just about the music, it's about some other bigger idea. And I think it can work both ways. But well, speaking of that bigger idea, of course, the, the, the scenes in the uh, refugee camps with these kids and just the, the, the desperation of the situation, but also the, the love that is in that room and the, the real... And I guess we're starting to touch on this big question that, that is, starting to, to, is hanging over us about what music what the role of music is. But tell us about shooting in that camp and, and what it was actually like to be there. Well, and of course, when we started the film, the last thing I imagined when I met Yo-Yo, the night I met Yo-Yo, was that I would end up in a refugee camp in Jordan three years, three and a half years later. But it's where the documentary took us. And, um, and that was meeting Kahan as we were filming. And then his journey, which was really trying to figure out more than anybody else in the film, why he was doing what he was doing. And the realization he came to, which felt very important to him, is that, that people who are refugees don't just need food and shelter. They need a sense of who they are. They've lost that sense of identity because they've lost that culture. And that when you, you know, if you just look at them as people who are just needy for handouts and, or statistics or however else we look at them in the West, when you actually go up to them and see how kind of nourished they are by reconnecting with what they left behind, with their own music and culture, um, you know, it's amazing. I mean, Kinan has not gone back many, many times to camps. And in fact, just last week, I'm so happy about this, we actually dubbed the film into Arabic and we screened it back at Zadari camp last week and we've been taking it now over the next two months to camps all over um, the country surrounding Syria. So that's and, amazing. And, and what was the response like? You, you obviously weren't there at the time. Yeah, but, I, but... I, no, I, I couldn't go last week because our film was opening, but Kavork, uh, the artist, and Wuman both went to Zadari with the film last week. And they wrote me an amazing email, and they sent pictures, and they said it, the film played amazingly well, but what it led to was after the film, they ended up having a kind of spontaneous jam, I guess, with, with Wuman playing and Kavork was doing art and other people started doing art and they said it was, did exactly what they were hoping. It kind of led to this moment of coming together. And do, is that an expectation that you have for uh, when you're as a filmmaker, that it's going to take on a life outside of us sitting here in Sydney watching it on the screen and being really moved by it? Do, do I actually well, you don't, have those, that I mean, kind I don't, of effect? I don't think about that when I make films, but what's been interesting about this film is since we finished it, the context around the film has changed as the world's been changing. So just seeing, I mean, I never expected to make a film that was, you know, it started as a film about music and tradition that became a film about home. And what that means in 2016 is different even than 2013. So to see how the film plays differently, you know, we were able to take the film to Berlin in February and the refugee crisis is so acute there. And we gave away a large number of tickets to Syrian refugees living in Germany. And we had a large number of Syrian musicians come up and perform afterwards with Kenan. And just to see how the film played in that kind of an audience was very different even than when I f first finished the film. So as the world changes, the film changes too. And that's something you never expect when you're making a film. You just, you think it's one thing, but it'll continue to evolve. I'm just going to check my watch, which is very rude, but I just want to make... We've got another... That's good. Um, I just thought, you know, if I was looking at my watch... I, I'm loving this conversation. I want it to go forever. Sure, I just, sure. Um, it may surprise you, but I'm actually married, Morgan, and um, I was able to woo my beautiful wife, who's uh, many, many stages above me in, in beauty and talent. Um, and I, I didn't woo her with my immense bulk, it may surprise you, but I, I wooed her with a mixtape. Yeah, a mixtape that she summarily lost very shortly after I gave it to her. But nevertheless, I, I credit the mixtape with uh, my marriage and my two children. Now, the mixtape is a very important thing for you, isn't it? Tell us about your relationship to it. Well, you know, as somebody who... Um I mean, a mixtape is just storytelling, really. It's a way of putting together ideas um, 
and telling the People story. People don't realise this. I'm, I'm glad you finally <laughs> yeah. said it. Yeah, how important it is. It, it's, it's very important. I mean, your children have a mixed to thank. That, um, no, I, I think it's, it's the, what music does to us too, and it, it allows us to kind of express the inexpressible uh, and to build these human connections in ways that are, you know, other, otherwise impossible to articulate. Yeah, so, um, but for me, and it's interesting now, as the world's changed more and more away from mixtapes. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what's gone wrong, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> it's the only thing that's gone wrong with the world. Um, but I think that, but these, you know, with films, like I said, I still think of them as, as music telling a story and taking us on a, on a journey. Um, and is it true you, you put a mixtape together before a lot of your films? I did, yeah, and yeah. I did one for 20 Feet, too. I mean, 20 Feet was incredibly difficult because because I couldn't think of songs. <laughs> I mean, it, really, the challenge of that, the first week we started working on the film was, um, you know, name off the top of your head songs with great backup vocals. And at the time, your brain just doesn't work that way because by their very definition, they're in the background. And so it became me retraining my ear to discover backup vocals in, so in songs I knew very well, but just never thought of them as background vocal songs. And to this day... I hear songs and go, oh, that song. Yeah, should have put that in the film. Yeah, so I'm still collecting backup vocal songs. Now, you mentioned the fact that a lot of people come out of film school. You came out of journalism. You were a print journalist uh, early in your career. It's probably a good switch considering how newspapers are going at the moment. But, um, but uh, tell, uh, you, tell us a little bit about getting into, into filmmaking. Obviously, your love for music has always been there, but you've also done films that are really about politics uh, as well. Just give us, a, give us a little bit of the, the background about you and where you came from. Well, um, I mean, my background is I came up with three loves, basically. My three loves were film, music, and journalism. And in a way, I'm kind of doing all three at the same time still today, because I think documentary filmmaking absolutely is journalism. You know, we're still telling people stories. It's what it's all about. Um, but for me... You know, I loved film and I loved music, but somehow journalism seemed like the serious career, so I, I better be a journalist. And at some point when I was 25, I had this kind of breakthrough where I said, well, why don't I actually do journalism around the thing that I spend every moment of my free time doing, which is film and music? Um, because I'd started in kind of political journalism. And once I kind of made that breakthrough, um, it completely liberated me. So, so even a film like Best of Enemies, which was here last year at the festival with Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley about these debates. And, and you were a fact checker for Gore Vidal for a yeah, while. Yeah, I did work as a fact checker. What was that like? It was a horrible experience. Because <laughs> my job was to tell Gore Vidal that he was incorrect and there's no worse job on the planet than that. Um, but a film like that, which on its surface seems political, in fact, is a film about the culture of politics and really about media. Um, so I've come to... I just keep coming back to culture as the thing that I gravitate towards. And I feel like there are lots of films that are very polemical, lots of documentaries that want to tell you what to think or that something's bad, and I get that. But I'm always much more interested in asking questions and letting people make up their own mind about it. Even though I have lots of opinions, I just <laughs> don't want to tell you. You come across as very opinionated. Um, the, the, uh, just tap, tap me back to something that we touched on a little bit, and, and that was the, the nature of culture. Uh, as we live in a glo very globalised um, society, and the, the nature of culture disappearing. And, you know, it's happening here in Australia where there's a lot of languages, Indigenous languages in Australia, which we're losing at an incredibly rapid rate, that people are struggling to try and document before they're, they're lost in in parts of Australia at the moment. And that's just one little tiny thing, you know, like across the globe there are just millions of these, these areas. And I wonder, in a, in a process of putting a film like this together, what are your thoughts about where we're all heading? Is it, uh, you know, the, the, the nature of homogenisation that, that all of us sort of fear a little bit, that, that we are all going to have this slightly monolithic cultural reference point, um, where does it end up? Um. I have to say, even just coming here and seeing how much the U.S. elections playing here is scary because it's, you know, I thought I could come here and escape it, but I can't. There's no escaping the, the U.S. politics. Well, there is Donald yeah. Trump, you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> no. 
So there's no escaping Donald Trump, I guess. Hopefully, hopefully this November. Um, but just um, there is kind of a overriding monolithic culture that, you know, we're here in an Apple store, which looks just like the Apple store by my house. <laughs> we're using the same computers. We're watching most of the same media, things like Netflix and what they're doing to the media we, we take in or, you know, other streaming services. Um, you know, I, it's worrisome to me, you know. So, but to me, I think, I mean, there's the counter trend which you get, which is the democratization of media both leads to kind of a, a monolithic media, but it also leads to kind of a multitude of micro cultures. And I feel like we have to make sure we embrace those as much as we possibly can. And it's, it's tough. Um, I mean, filmmaking has done that too. It's kind of gone both ways. So now anybody can make a documentary with your phone, with your Apple iPhone, and edit it on your MacBook. And, um, and it's kind of amazing what you can do now versus when I started making films. And that's amazing. And there are films getting made now that never could have been made before. Um, but finding the audience is always the key. So that's, that's really, I think, where we need to, to do our work is people have to feel empowered to actually make decisions rather than just take what's fed to them. Uh, I am sensing that this fruit here is ripe and we might pluck it from the tree and, and broach that question. What is the role of music in an age where so much nastiness happens around us and, and we are drenched with it? You know, what's, your, what's your personal relationship to it? What's, what's your sense of what the role of it is? It's, it's interesting. I mean, last year I made a, a film about... Keith Richards, and the thing that dawned on me about Keith was um, it's, music was, was his religion. You know, it was like the one thing that he, he never doubted, that never cheated on him, that was always there to nourish him. It was like the one constant in his life, and it's the one thing he believed in more than anything. And I get that because, you know, music fills me in that kind of a way. Um, but to your question, what's the role today? And to me, the answer that this film circles and the answer I think for Yo-Yo is that it's all about empathy. That, you know, the music of strangers is actually a contradiction in terms because you can't be a stranger with somebody you're making music with because the very act of making music is about connecting with somebody. And I think Yo-Yo is all about building bridges, about building these connections and taking musicians from foreign lands and putting them in front of you and explaining who they are and vice versa. And in a way, you know, if there's anything we don't have enough of in our world, uh, it's empathy. And when we have politicians talking about building walls, I think that's utterly destructive to the future of this planet. I think building bridges is what it has to be about. But how I relate to it is that the movies to me are also, I mean, I think Roger Ebert had called movies empathy machines. That, in fact, it's exactly what you do. You see a film about somebody who you think you have nothing in common with, and you recognize something of your own experience and their experience. So I feel like culture, then, what music means, but not just music, food, film, all of these things are really about having a relationship with foreign cultures and understanding something utterly relatable and humanizing about those through food because it, or through culture or music or film or anything because it doesn't happen through politics and it doesn't happen generally through economics or, or even through religion. So what's your record collection like? Uh, vast. <laughs> so I think it's the one good thing about making music documentaries is it kind of gave me an excuse to be a professional uh, record geek. Yeah, a hoarder. <laughs> and where do you keep your Academy Award, Morgan? Uh, it's on the mantle is at it? home. <laughs> yes, my wife is here. She, she makes sure it's, it's there. It's well-polished, I'm sure. It is. My kids, yeah, and my, my daughter was yeah, going to make... Who are, playing, uh, who are so, entr so entranced by our conversation. I know. Playing Minecraft She's, they're playing the Minecraft, <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, but I think they... Um, They've made clothes for Oscar, so they little yes. There, there's a little outfit that he sometimes wears when we have guests over. 
Okay, uh, the, the, the music of Strangers, C.A.O. Mar and the Silk Road Ensemble is the film that we've been discussing. It's the film that you saw today. It's a film that, uh, un unless you're made of stone or wood, uh, has touched you and moved you in so many ways. What we might do is grab a, a microphone. Uh, we have one, well done, just like that, bam. Here's one we prepared earlier. Um, so, after seeing the film, Imagine if you were able to ask a question of the filmmaker. I mean, wouldn't that be just be a tremendous thing? All right, do we have any takers? Okay, we might start with, um, with you, sir, down the front, and then we'll come to you straight, straight after. <laughs> uh, as a person who's from Iran and from Middle East, I made lots of connections with your movie. It made me laugh, it made me cry, and made me think, which is a, I think it's a big achievement for a, an artist and a filmmaker. Uh, my question is, in sake of the people who haven't seen this movie, is there any plans to screening in Australia or is there any way to get hold on a yes. copy of the you know, DVD or well, something? I, and I'm glad you asked because my I have a distributor here in Australia, Mad Men, who are putting the film out later this year. So it's going to come out and I'm sure it'll, get, it'll come out in theaters, but it'll get out elsewhere in different ways. So it will find its way out later this year which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, quite frankly, every Australian should see it, and um, it should be a, a, an election policy. Um, let's, yeah, have you got the microphone yet? Yeah, let's. Thank you very much. Really loved the film, and especially your previous one, 20 Feet, as well. Thank you. Um, I, as a musician, I was immensely curious about the elements of music that was, were being created by the Silk Road Ensemble, and also the actual music that was played when the musicians were playing their instruments traditionally, their own repertoire. And I just wondered, is there a way of including that information for people like me who love to know those sort of things? And it's probably would take, you'd, the account of that, to that would be say, well, it's taking the film in a different direction and it would be information overload. So would there be technically a way, perhaps in the future, where we could be looking at our mobile phones or something and, you know, this information will be available for us to look at if we chose to, which wouldn't disrupt the beautiful, you know, imagery, etc., that we're seeing on the film. Have you sort of thought about well, those sort of things? Yeah, and I've actually been talking to somebody about doing a companion book to gather a lot of these things. So sure enough, when I was making the film, I interviewed some brilliant ethnomusicologists and other people kind of explaining a lot of these things. Um, and ultimately I cut all of that out just because it started to get very didactic and cerebral and just was stepping all over the music. I mean, the quick answer is there's no one way the music works. So they commission pieces and a couple of the composers, um, Tandun in the film, Tandun and um, Osvaldo and uh, a few other composers um, are commissioned to do pieces. So when they first got together in 2000, they had commissioned 16 pieces, which were kind of sketches of pieces to do. But at the same time, a lot of these pieces come out of improvisation. And a lot of times, members of the ensemble or other people will adapt traditional songs. Um, I know there's a whole project going on where they're documenting field recordings and then turning these melodies into songs as well. They're also doing a major project now around rivers and songs and rivers around the world. So these things happen in every which way, you know, so they can be very kind of formal and more of like a Western notated kind of a way, or it can be something, a lot of times the pieces are written so that they're, they can be elastic, that it can come to a part of the song or the piece that can change depending on how it's played on that particular evening or event. Um, so it gets very complicated, but, but every which way is how the music's made. Yeah. Just on the back of that, how, do the, how, do you, how does Yo-Yo and the, the composers work with the fact that a lot of... I mean, there's a lot of similarities between the, the background of the music, but there's a lot of different tonal chromatic scales that you, with those different instruments that you're messing around with too. I mean, is it a constant minefield for them when they're, they're playing together to be able to find the commonality? It is. I mean, I think they've learned a lot about, you know, all the different intonation scales of different cultures. And I, uh, and I feel like they're good enough musicians that they've been able to figure out how to speak each other's language, even if it's not a Western language. So, and I, th I know Yo-Yo 
um, even has like a horse head fiddle, Mongolian uh, horse head fiddle he plays and all the kind of quarter tones and things you get out of a, uh, an Arabic music scale, you know, that, that Yo-Yo, he can do it. And he's the first to admit he's not very good at it, but, but he can do it. And on his cello, it's very interesting to see. I've heard him play Mongolian pieces, and I think there's even a piece in there he does, um, this Mongolian uh, horse head fiddle piece he does on his cello. And um, so, but I think it's, yeah, it's part of that. I, I, I know it's changed how he plays Western music too, because it's given him a different sense of tonality too. And again, coming back to that theme of innovation is, where you find the, the creativity, obviously. Um, okay, we've got a, a question up there and I'll come, come to you afterwards, yeah. Hi, um, I myself am a, I've recently done film studies and have done actual small projects. And I was wondering, where do you, you are mentioning mobile phones, being able to document everything. Do you think that could in a way affect the future of how documentaries come out in the film in, into cinemas and through the Oscars and all that, and also through your studies of the music for, through this documentary, what do you thought of the future music with, the, with technology impacting on electronic dance music and how it can affect classical music and oh, all wow. that? Oh, wow, that's, that's a, a big that's question. A lot, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, the technology is changing everything. It's changing how we watch films, how we find films, how we make films. Um, and like I said, there are people capturing things for documentaries now. Um, th there was a film like the, um, the Burmese film that was all filmed on uh, kind of hidden video. I mean, a number of these films. And like uh, um, there's another film about Aleppo last year that was great. I mean, th these films that are being captured because of the technology. The flip side of that is that with that many more films being made, I think the filmmaking and the quality of it is actually more important than ever. Because as any film festival programmer will tell you, there's so many films getting made, but you have to put the same rigor into making the film. Even if the technology has made it easier to start the film, you still have to put the thought into it to make the film as strong as possible. And, and I don't know, well, to skip around, I don't know, in terms of uh, electronic dance, I mean, it's all changing Come on, Morgan. <laughs> dramatically <laughs> so um but yeah i don't know uh, yeah. i know where to go with that coming so. back i think is what morgan's trying to say it's yeah. it's on the He's way back it. and there's a and jungles back in 2016 too actually it, it, uh, documentary making is one of the harder areas of the, uh, the the film industry to try and get anybody to spend any money on um i take it an academy award probably helps you in your your ventures but it, it, what what I mean, does an award like that change what you're able to do? Yeah, yeah. in a big way. Um, mainly because, um, I mean, I used to spend, as a filmmaker, half my time making films and half my time raising money to make films, which I think is actually a pretty good ratio. Now it's more like 90-10. So um, I get to just be more creative and spend less time worrying about making, you know, finding the money. Um, but even still, it's um, it's never easy, uh, you know. Even even for me, with having been doing this for 25 years. Um, but that being said, I actually feel like it's never been a better time to make documentaries. Um, I think documentaries for so long were kind of viewed as like the spinach of filmmaking. <laughs> it was like something that you had, you know, that was like good for you, but you didn't really want to do it. And, and for years, people would say, uh, I love documentaries, but I just don't know where to see them or to find them. And I feel like part of what technology's done, and whether it's things like iTunes or Netflix or all these other services, just putting documentaries on an equal playing field with any other type of film, many, many people choose them. And so I've just found the audience for documentary has been growing exponentially, which is Fantastic. Which is good for you. It's good for the industry. And it's good for all of us, of course. It's very healthy. Uh, yes, your question. Oh, thank you so much for making the film. It was an incredibly moving journey, as was 20 Feet. I was just going to ask you if you're free to tell us about projects you're working on now. Uh, projects I'm working on now. Um, uh, Spill the beans, Well, Morgan. no, I mean, I'm not... I'm about to start another feature 
documentary that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> um, the two other things I can talk about, one is um, I'm actually doing a documentary series for Netflix um, on design and architecture. So this is, again, me trying to kind of look at a different part of culture and look at um, how design thinking shapes how we see the world we live in. So it's actually been, I've been filming with designers and architects, which has been fantastic. So uh, there, there you go. So that'll be early, early next year, that'll be done. And, um, and then the other um, kind of amazing thing is I'm shooting a scripted film this fall uh, with, with actors. So uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That's very exciting. Okay, um, I might go for Madam and then I'll go to you afterwards. Yeah, thanks. Sorry to call you Madam. That was terrible. I'm not sure where that came from. <laughs> Mademoiselle, thank you. Thank you. That was I don't know where that came from. documentary. It should win a World Peace Prize for that. But I just wanted to ask you, given that many of the musicians live in their own... Um, can't they go back to their own countries quite regularly. How often do they come together for rehearsals and are they um, on tour ever? Do they travel and perform in different parts of the world and do they regularly come together as a... So the Silk Road, the ensemble and how ensemble. often... I, mean, so I missed the very, yeah, very beginning So they, of they get together um, for two or three tours a year. Um, and one of those might be in North America and one might be in Europe and one might be in Asia. I know they play in Asia a fair amount and I don't know if they played here. I imagine they played here. Anybody know? You must have so much footage of them. Is there a companion piece going to come? I mean, people who've seen the film would be very keen to see a, a full concert. Yeah. I, well, I did, I did film a concert some when I began this project. I actually did film a concert that's on one of their CDs, Is that right? <laughs> if okay. you still buy those things. Yeah. Um, so uh, what was it called? Uh, Invitation... So it's out there somewhere. Yeah, it's out there somewhere. There's one, and, and it was broadcast. Um, so there are some elements of filmed programming with them. Uh, and they have a new album out as well, which is not the music from the film, but a new album of right. duets that they're doing. Fantastic. All right. Um, I'll go, go at the back. I think I was next. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Morgan, you spoke earlier about exploring and, and deconstructing characters and how you portray them. Do you have any techniques you've found successful to, to get people to open up, particularly around... Uh, sensitive topics? I mean, the main thing for me in interviewing people is keep it as conversational as possible. So, you know, I try and talk to people and if the camera's going or not going, you don't change. And, and often, something I've done more and more of um, is actually doing audio interviews. So, sometimes I'll just... I mean, I actually, for this design show, there was a designer in, in Germany, and, um, and I hired a sound man to go to his house and set up a microphone, and then I would talk to him on the phone for two hours at a time. And by the time I started filming, I'd done eight hours of audio interviews with him, which was so helpful, and I used it throughout. But there's a kind of a, just a in intimacy. If somebody doesn't feel like there's a camera and lights on them, that um, it's very easy to get them relaxed. So, you know, I'm kind of loving that. So I would recommend doing that. Um, sorry? Yeah. Is that to break down the barriers? Are you using the audio? I use the, the audio, products? absolutely. Okay. I use it. Um, because to me, the audio is the, the key thing. Like, if you've got the story, like, you, visually you can tell the story, um, you know, but if you don't have good audio, you can't. You can't make the film. I always say, when, you fin when I finish a shoot, I don't turn to the cameraman and say, do you get it? I turn to the sound man and say, did you get it? You know, that's the important thing, really. But, so absolutely, I use that. Um, and part of that is just to build those relationships, but to be very casual about it. But even when I'm filming, you know, I try and keep it really loose and I never ask people to repeat things. I'll just circle back around to it. And, and so I really, I see people interviewing people like it's an interrogation, and I feel like that's the opposite. It's got to be a conversation, and the key thing for that is really listen to what they're saying. Ask dumb follow-up questions. Don't be a, don't. I feel a lot of people when they're interviewing people try and show off how much they know. So, <laughs> oh, you just looked at me. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> dumb follow-up questions was that right? Uh, no, we, <laughs> no, there's somebody down here we might might ask. Please throw the focus over there for a little while. Hi, um, thank you for the film, I really enjoyed it. 
Um, I'm interested in talking about structure and how you um, structured the film and how you decided what to choose to film and at what particular time, obviously over a long period of time. Um, yeah, it's more about like not this, not this that I'm interested in hearing about. The structure of this film is actually incredibly complicated because um, you've got five individual characters and then you've got what I call the meta arc of the characters, which is that hero's journey or however you want to call it. Um, so you have to introduce all of your characters and then they start syncing up into scenes so that, and I, it's actually not that dissimilar from the structure for 20 Feet From Stardom, where you have a handful of characters who are on a similar journey, even though they're making different decisions and have different stories. Because they're on a similar journey, you don't have to recount everybody's um, story beat at every point because you get the sense that everybody's having a similar journey. So, um, so I, you know, I'm a big proponent of you put together big boards in the edit bay and you mark out every possible scene and I color code them and I kind of look at the individual characters, I'll get a color and then the kind of the, the overarching arc of the story gets a, a, a color. And then I stitch that together into 35 scenes. And I always think of them as scenes. People always think documentaries don't have scenes to them, but they're, that's they all they are. <laughs> they're scenes. And that's the playlist. You know, each, each scene is a song. I still think of it that way. Um, and so it's just figuring out what, what has to go in there. And there were, there were some amazing scenes that I shot that I didn't put in. I mean, a couple things with, um, for instance, uh, with Keenan, the uh, clarinetist, he told me the story that when they opened the Damascus Opera House in 2003, he was commissioned to play the opening for Assad. And he said, I'll do it if I can commission a piece from a composer, a friend of mine. So they ha he commissioned this piece and he performed it opening night. And it's this very kind of modern and angry, angular piece of music. And he told me the story that he stood there opening night with Assad sitting in the presidential booth right across from him and played this. And he said, just with my clarinet, I felt like the most powerful man on the planet that night because I was able to tell him what I thought through my music. And then I found the footage of this and I actually got the footage and I cut it together and it's just amazing, but it's one of those hard decisions you have to make making a film that early in the film to hit a scene like that was stopping it and it just didn't fit anywhere else and those are the kinds of decisions that the film has its own logic and its own flow and you can't, you can't fight it as much as you want to. Um, that I've, I've become better at cutting things out the longer I've been doing this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I think we might wrap it up there. Uh, I think you'll agree with me, Morgan's a pretty extraordinary character. The film that we saw today is absolutely beautiful and very, very touching. So please thank him, Morgan Neville, ladies and thank gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Morgan.